Welcome to the Recovery Hour podcast, where we choose to recover out loud by sharing our personal stories of inspiration, hope, and triumph. Together, we can end the stigma and shame typically tied to mental illness and the disease of addiction. We are proof that recovery does happen. Joy and laughter may be involved. This is the Recovery Hour with Lori Winfeld. Welcome to the Recovery Hour. This is your host, Lori Winfeld. And today, our special guest is Michelle Moyer. Hi, Michelle. Hi, Lori. Thank you so much for joining. This has been a long time coming. Michelle and I met, not IRL, for those of you that don't know what that means, in real life. We're in the days of internet dating (laughs) and internet relationships, and this is how we find our friends. And Michelle and I connected months ago on Zoom calls through an organization that I talk all the time about because I love it and I feel like it's um, my life is She Recovers, sherecovers.org. And Michelle and I are OGs, basically. We go to every meeting pretty much. This is the first time I've actually seen Michelle. We're on Zoom camera. Michelle's the best ever when she gets on the Zooms for She Recovers. She's always lurking in the background, but very active, but not showing us who she is. So this is like the reveal. It's like watching that show, the unmasked dancer or the masked singer or some weird shit like that. It's really not like anything, but anywho, Michelle reached out to me a while ago because I am always looking for special guests and she's amazing because she actually listens to the show and doesn't just talk about it like she does. So that's cool. And she really touched me by saying, if I was looking for a gut-wrenching 100% real and raw guest, she would be more than willing. And I mean, that's just exactly what I do is try to find people like her. Without further ado and my bullshit, let's talk to Michelle and find out all about her. What I want to start with is the fact that you're a chronic relapser. That is something I haven't experienced. So I love to hear about it because then of course, probably the more I'm educated, the less likely I'll be to do that. But what you said is that you took 17 years to string three sober months together. So that was sort of the catalyst of your now over three years of sobriety. Right. And Lori, I did. Um, There is a a lot of intergenerational trauma in my background. And the reason I can use some of the technical terms going through is because I do work in drug and alcohol and I've done extensive research to find out why um, I was as fucked up as I was. Let's just be honest. I needed a reason and I was a chronic relapser. I actually didn't start drinking and my drug of choice was alcohol. But when I say alcohol, I mean um, a handle bottle, 1.7 liters and a half a day. No. I drank three liters of alcohol, of of rot gut vodka per day. And that, did it start like that? No, 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 no. I wasn't 17. It was between my uh, high school senior year and going to college. Uh, But I drank alcoholically the very first time. It might have only been two beers, but I drank till I threw up and I would do it the next time too. Uh, Very much so alcoholically. And it was because of... um, social anxiety with men. I have daddy issues. I have background issues. And like, if someone would come up and talk to me, 
I'm very much so. I was voted class clown my senior year of high school. That's me. Everything is is uh, covered up with humor. So it made so alcohol was you know helped me come out of that, come out of my shell. But, but believe me, I'm in no way shy. Um, it was just an awkward situation. So I partied hard in college. Um, I never really had to work for my grades in high school or in college. And uh, I was very ass backwards sexually because of some things that happened in my past. So I was like a 21-year-old virgin, if you can believe that. My first husband uh, was my first. So there was a lot of firsts in college. The alcohol was was also it, being away. And when I knew that I had a problem, it, it started with beer. Uh, I had a beer meister in my apartment and uh, Coors Light was my thing. What's a beer meister? Oh, um, it's where you put the keg in it. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Okay. I'm not, you know, dating myself. <laughs> um, but well, what happened was I would go through a 30 pack a day of Coors Light pounders and I couldn't hide the cans anymore. Mm. So with a keg, I could hide it. Uh, keg is, I forget how many cases of beer. But when I knew I had a problem was when uh, I could finish that keg in under a week. I knew I had a serious drinking problem. Something had to interrupt it. So why not get pregnant? <laughs> yes. The, the way that the women decide to stop drinking. Let's bring a life into this world because right. that fetus is going to be more important than me. Right. Well, actually, my first pregnancy, um, it did. Uh, it was enough to keep me sober. Right. Both my kids were born prematurely. So until I told everybody I was pregnant and had to quit drinking was probably six or eight weeks. And then until my son was born, he was born six weeks early. I wasn't pregnant all that terribly long. But I realized when my son was born that this was a problem. The alcohol was a problem. And I went to my very first AA meeting over 20 years ago. And you know, I, I can't, um, I, follow, I, I, I do consider myself a member of AA today. However, it is not my only pathway to recovery. I respect it for what it did for me in the beginning. I have the, the person I respect the most in recovery is what I, I call her the AA guru, but I follow many pathways today. But that was the first one that got me started. And I was a chronic relapser. I collected 88 one day at a time chips where I stood up and said, yes, I want to start this journey. Um, and that's just the ones I had the balls to get up and get. Wow. Like um, I did not uh, No, it was, it was incredibly difficult. Um, I would have a 30 day chip, go back out. I would go to meetings loaded. It was very, very difficult. And I had incredible support in that I did not have to be around alcohol. My husband quit drinking when I tried to get sober the first time. So my husband hasn't drank in 20 years and I drank three years ago. You know what I'm saying? Mm. So while he was probably my big, biggest enabler, he's also the only reason I'm alive um, because he slowed my drinking many times. What for your, so, oh gosh, I just like my brain. Okay. 88 times you continue to go to the rooms. You continue to walk in to say, I want to try this again. How did the 89th time or whatever it was, since the rest, you don't even know what changed. I mean, what made it stick? Okay, Lori, well, buckle up. <laughs> <laughs> okay, hold on. <laughs> the thing with, with alcohol is that you can go 
a very long period of time without dying, but it's a horrible way to die uh, versus drugs. First, I was hospitalized in intensive care seven different times with severe pancreatitis, um, severe pancreatitis to the point where I blew, I eventually blew out my pancreas and I am on an insulin pump for the rest of my life. I can, I'm considered to have type one diabetes, even though I wasn't born with it. Also, um, I have uh, six DUIs. Um, uh, I have been to jail three different times um, for a total of a little over a year. Um, and this is why I am running a small college. I'm the dean of a campus. And um, I felt like I had no one because I was in education. And you can have absolutely nothing on your record in education. So I felt like I had nowhere to go, nowhere to hide. And it just made me drink, become more, um, you know, secret with my drinking. The, the only thing I ever did right in sobriety was I kept coming back. I didn't give up. I taught high school English, very prominent high school in the area. I got caught drinking in the classroom. My principal, who to this day is the, the best person I've ever worked for in my life, he adored me um, in a fatherly way. To this day, I, I adore him. He made it so that the public did not find out mm. and that I was suspended without, without pay for 20 days. And then I could come back. Well, the problem with that was that was 20 days of drinking time for me. Right. <laughs> I was like, Woo-hoo! you know, so um, they, they didn't make me go away because they didn't deal with professionals addiction, you know, right. professionals with addiction. So um, I had a 20 day party and didn't go anywhere and came back. And um, one year later to the date, got caught drinking in the classroom again. So I destroyed my, um, but again, they were very gracious to me and um, the public did not find out or I could have been crucified. For sure. Right. And this was in like around what year was this happening? Yeah, this was when I first started going to treatment around 2006, five or six. Okay. I because And I asked that because I feel like we have definitely made strides in the community of acceptance with not only the disease of alcoholism, but also with mental health. However, the backlash, like you said, that could have come from the public knowing that a teacher was drinking in the classroom to a normal person seems so obscure and bizarre and like, oh my God, why would they want to be partying? I could just imagine what people would be thinking versus you're literally like, if I don't have a drink, I'm going to die. And I just need to do it now to stop whatever physical and mental craziness is happening with your body. Right. And at this point, um, I started to become a 24 hour a day drinker. This is when um, I would hide, have it hidden. My, there is no place in my house that I can hide anything. Absolutely. My husband is super sleuth. So, um, so I would hide it around the neighborhood. Um, I would run, my husband would get in the shower and I'd run full speed down to the shrubs, down the street where, um, and my, my husband's in the shower and come back and throw it in a place where he already checked. I mean, I, it was a full-time job being my kind of alcoholic. Holy shit. I'd wake up uh, every two hours in the night and I'd have to sneak out and remember where I put 
the bottle so that I could go back to sleep. You know, uh, I started one winter, I hid it in the snow. This is a great idea, man. I hid it. And then I would forget where I hid the booze and spring would come and I'd have a bot the garden in my backyard. So, <laughs> you know, um, but hiding and not sharing came very naturally to me. Um, my father committed suicide when I was four and a half years old with prescription drugs. Um, my mother, uh, he came from a very traumatic background. He was adopted at four, but by that time, the damage had been done. He came from a very physically abusive home, mentally abusive home. My mother had her own, uh, you know, my mother's story is hers to tell. I don't tell my mother's story. Secrecy, her, her she was, her, she grew up in the, her dad was the highest non-commissioned officer, a master sergeant. Her mom died when she was young. She was physically abused. She was sexually abused and just hiding. Like whatever you do, nothing outside the home gets out. Mm. So while my mom um, still to this day tells me what a wonderful childhood I had and, and it, it was just great. And don't you remember this and this? And I really don't remember a lot. I, I block out a lot. And I was always so resentful to my mother that she thinks I had this great great life. And it's just in sobriety these past three years where I'm not going to lie and say I had a good childhood by any means, but I'm starting to spend more time on my mother's psyche sort of than my own because it's helping me to forgive mm -hmm. and, and also realize that compared to her childhood, I really did have a great childhood, even though mine was very abusive. There's sexual abuse. There's all kinds of abuse, codependency, but it was tenfold better than hers where, um, you know, she had a family member crawl in bed with her. So um, I'm, I'm right now, I'm still in very new sobriety. I'm in several organizations and I work in drug and alcohol where they insist you stand up and say, hi, my name's Michelle and I'm in long-term recovery. I don't say that. Three years is not long-term recovery to this addict. Um, there's just no way because when I go back, when I go out, when I, when I relapsed in the past, it's, it's not even a thought. It's just boom, gone. Um, so long-term recovery is, is I need to have quite a few years under my belt before I'm comfortable with that. So a lot of it's very fresh and very raw to me now. I still don't, you know, I'm not one that when you meet me, I throw up all over you about my recovery. I'm very private sort of about my recovery, but anybody that would ask me or anyone I think I could help in a minute, I would tell them about my recovery, but I don't come out with it because I grew up in a very secretive, like I couldn't tell anyone my dad committed suicide. Mm. That was the no-no. Your dad died. If anyone asked, car accident, you know, I couldn't talk about the drug abuse. I couldn't talk about my mom, who I don't believe was a full-blown alcoholic because she gave it up in, in her elder years, but she was a heavy, heavy drinker. Uh, you didn't talk about that. Um, when things happen to me sexually, you don't talk about that. So it was very easy when I knew I had a problem drinking. You don't talk about that, you know, and I, I'm sure that I've read that in my two boys, although now we speak very, very openly about drugs. There's a lot of healing still taking place. You know, three years is not enough time to, uh, you know, unignite those bridges. <laughs>
Yeah, for sure. I can't help it. I, in my mind, I keep thinking going back to going far back in your conversation about your dad and wondering because of traumas that I've experienced in my life, I feel like I remember them based on stories that people have told me versus the actual traumatic experience. So for me, what I'm wondering is, do you feel like you remember what happened when your dad committed suicide? Were you, you were young, you were four? Four and a half. Yeah. Um, I do not, uh, I do not remember. I have, I have one recurring dream of my dad that I, I have like every other year or something. Of course, I do believe my memories of my dad um, were from stories. However, I was not allowed to talk about my dad. It was like, your dad's gone. We don't need, because my mom had such a bitterness because his addiction went on for a year and a half. He broke into doctor's offices. He wrote prescriptions. He was in the mental hospital. And my mom was, you know, you just don't tell. So my mom's dearest friend, who is like my other mother, is the only stories that is the only positive things I have of my dad. Mm-hmm. Like she will tell me he was like, I'm funny like him, this and that. So I would not say that that trauma, the trauma for me surrounding my father was the secret that you were not allowed to tell. And that, so nobody, like he was my number one caregiver at the time because he couldn't hold a job. So my mom was working several jobs. So all of a sudden this four and a half year old has spent years with this man and poof, he's gone and we're not allowed to talk about him. We're not allowed to, so, so that was, to that, to this day, that's traumatic to me. My mom is just now willing to talk to me about my father. And we're talking like 45, 50 years later. Mm. <laughs> and, and I think the secret surrounding many of my traumas has just catapulted the effects of the trauma, really, really has exasperated everything. What I'm finding in sobriety is that alcohol truly was the symptom was a symptom and not, not the starting factor. I think I had a lot of mental health issues surrounding trauma. I think there's serious CPTSD that had it been dealt with, this not, might not have come out in the form of alcoholism. As you said, you called it ugly drinking, but I just, it's excessive. How did you get to a place where you were physically able to be a functioning human when or were you when you were drinking handles of vodka a day? Well, um, as I said, it it was, it started with beer and it was a 30 pack of Coors Light pounders a day. I also have body dysmorphia eating disorder. So I was not one to binge and purge. I was one to just not eat for days. And so the beer made that easy, but I gained 50 pounds and towards the end of the beer drinking. And that's also when I became diabetic. So losing the weight was incredibly difficult. When you're putting insulin in your body, it's very difficult to lose weight. So then, um, as I said, I couldn't hide all these beer cans. It was just impossible to hide 45, 16 ounce cans every 24 hours and get rid of them. And no one noticed. So then I I started with the rot gut vodka. And of course, my tolerance built. Mm-hmm. But then I started with the, um, then my, as I said, my, my hiding places sort of dried up in the house. So then I would have to drink in my car when I was traveling. Hence the DUI. You said six DUIs. Six. 
what I'm trying to figure out is how is that even possible? Like, isn't there a three strikes rule or something? Well, I got in Pennsylvania, I, I got relatively lucky in that um, every seven or every 10 years or every seven years, one goes away. Okay. So I got three in one part, like say 20 years ago, I got three and I was able to get um, accelerated rehabilitation, to get the first one expunged. And then I had the two on my record. Then I got another three in that same time period. And the first one started over again because of the time period from my first. Okay. So I got ARD again. What's ARD? Um, that's the accelerated rehabilitation program. Okay. It's where if you go to DUI classes, you get the first one expunged from your record. Um, so I had to go to that several times, but I, I've also been in county jail several I times. I was just going to ask three prison bids is what you said. Yep. A third, a third DUI is a mandatory in Pennsylvania, one year prison set. So I went to jail with the first time I had the three, I went to jail for four months and had an ankle monitor on for nine. So you were physically in a jail for four months. I was physically in a jail for a total of one year with the three of them. What is that experience? Like you're literally like, I'm a teacher. <laughs> I, I, at this time I was running a college. I was, okay. I was a director of a, a two-year associate degree, um, college. So like you talked about, that was so taboo in being an executive and having the type of drinking patterns that you did. And so you have an addiction to alcohol, which is so heavy. Your family obviously knows about your problem and you're just hiding it. And now based on your unlawful driving while drinking, you find yourself literally in prison or jail. And the worst part of that, Lori, was in this small college, uh, it was in the same county as the prison that I went to, and it was a small community college, and I was director of career services at one point, and I placed these students at the prison for externships for criminal justice and for um, uh, medical assisting. So when I go into this prison, my students are strip searching me making me get naked, squatting and coughing. And these were my students. Mm. It was absolutely horrible. And by this point, my drinking was so severe, Lori, that um, what I would do is I would drink 24 hours, but during the day, I would need a nap, obviously, from the amount of booze I was drinking. So I would lock my, now I'm in charge here. I would lock my office door and crawl under my desk and nap. <laughs> for an hour and then get, you know, get up and be okay for, you know, yeah. um, it was, uh, I'm telling you, it was a full-time job and then some yes. to, to be the kind of addict that I was. So then when I, I did decide that I was going to get, going to try this recovery thing, hold on, please. Sure. <laughs> I want to back up a little bit because I still have okay. questions about actually being in jail. One of the things that I feel like is lacking. And again, these days there are some advanced programs happening in different areas. But what I, I feel like has continually happened is that people are incarcerated with either mental health issues or addictions. And rather than actually getting help for that problem, you're being penalized because of behaviors that you really can't control based on the addiction. So what I'm interested in finding out during this time when you were jailed, and obviously physically addicted, like you needed alcohol. How did you survive 
within the system? And was it something that they helped you with? Or was it just like, F you lady, you know, you broke the rules, get in your jail cell and detox it out, which could be deadly. It was absolutely inhumane and horrible. And 85%, this was county jail, not state prison, 85 to 90% of the people were there for an addiction or mental health illness. Now, the only two, uh, the only two drugs that you can die of for withdrawal are alcohol and benzodiazepines. So they could not just throw me. And plus I was, uh, I was on an insulin pump. So what they did, which is absolutely brutal is for the first week, they'd throw me in the medical wing, which is 24 hour a day lockdown. You get out, you're allowed one, you're allowed one hour out to get your shower. There's no hallway, no recreation, no human contact. You are in a cell by yourself. And that honestly, uh, if that would have continued, I could have easily been suicidal easily. Yeah. Prison is absolutely horrendous. I wouldn't wish it on anyone. As a matter of fact, when there was a chance towards the end that, that I wasn't being believed for an incident that happened, it ended up, you know, if you tell the truth, it works out but I thought I might have to go back for a couple months. I told my husband, I said, I'll kill myself. I, I really do believe that after being in there for over a year, now not consecutive, it was, it was four months, three months, and then another six. I said, no, I said, I can't ever in my lifetime go back there. I, I just, I've had my limit. Well, and this is what baffles me about public opinion of those that are incarcerated for things like this, right? Like clearly, if you were thinking with a quote unquote normal brain, you wouldn't be fucking getting back into jail after what just you experienced, right? Like this is not time to be like, oh, slap on the wrist. Michelle, you know, made another mistake. It's like, what the fuck's wrong with this lady? Let's get her the help she needs. Right. (sighs) God, it's so frustrating. I'm like sweating. And, and, and the criminal justice system did me absolutely no favors. That's probably the still the one resentment that I've not let go of in sobriety. And it's because I'm still, I'm still on it. I, I'm still on paper. So my last stint was <laughs> I did my, my prison time. Um, and I'm, I still have to meet with a probation officer. One, this is three years later. Um, my, my last offense was December of 2016. Um, and we're in 2021. And I still have to see a probation officer, go for urine tests. I have to, um, uh, I'm still on paper. I, I, at one point, now this is for all of them, I owed $75,000 in DUI fines, court costs, and all that. I'm down to about 10 or 11. Um, but until I pay those fines, I'll still be on paper. So I have like three more years that this is why I say I am not in long-term recovery. It's still very real and raw to me. Absolutely. And, you know, and I work in drug and alcohol and I spent, I spoke at the first governor Our governor of our state had an opioid summit. And I spoke at that and I left there and went for a piss test. (laughs) So, So it's just. You know, it's, uh, yeah, the prison, I have absolutely nothing positive to say about prison and, and the dishonesty that goes on in there and the lot, it, it is, it is horrible. It mm-hmm. is absolutely 
the worst thing I will have ever done in my entire life. It, it, it's, it's everything you think it is. <laughs> wow. Well, I, I am, uh, as a mother and a woman and someone who has experienced and experience with addiction, I, um, and so grateful that you're here to tell us this story and just full of sorrow that you've had to experience that. It makes me think a lot about your children. This is still going on and you have a teenager and a, a, a son in, your, in, in his 20s. And what, what was that like as a mom to be going through this system, to be going through what could be considered continual disappointments in that you're not stopping the drinking and that you've got another DUI or that my mom's in jail. I mean, how does that feel as a mom? Honestly, Lori, um, that's something that if I dwell on it all the time, that could put me into suicidal tendencies as well. That's how strongly I feel about it. My boys are very, very different. My youngest has my personality, blah, 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 all over. And my young, uh, my oldest is uh, very quiet and act, sort of, I call it ass backwards, like my husband, very <laughs> socially awkward and quiet. And um, my oldest uh, saw a lot. And he also, uh, I was his person growing up. He was very um, shy and sheltered. And I was his person. I was the fighter for him in school. I was, so um, what he did when I went away to 30 day inpatients, he was very angry, very angry because my husband did not keep the structure that I kept and very resentful. And he spent many years like that. We just now we have, we're getting, we have a very solid relationship. And then my youngest saw things like my, my uh, oldest saw things when he was younger, my oldest, my youngest saw things when he was older and I wasn't pulling the wool over his eyes. You know what I mean? My manipulation and all that when he's 50, you know, when he's like 12, 13, he sees it, he sees Mm -hmm. what, but he is the one that he's my biggest cheerleader in the house. And he's the one that, um, just the other day, um, I told him about something at work and he goes, you know, mom, he goes, I'm really proud of you. And I get like uncomfortable. I'm like, I can't accept that because I'm not proud of myself yet at all. I'm not even there, but I'm also Lori, very honest with my boys. Like there's a lot of jokes that go on in this house. I'm not saying that they're uh, very kosher. Like, for example, when you hear the fire sirens or the cop cars, my oldest will say, mom, you better hide. (laughs) (laughs) Pretty horrible. But, um, but anyway, there's a lot of jokes. And I always tell them, if I can't serve as an excellent example of what to do, let me serve as an excellent example of what never to do. Mm. And um, my boys, my oldest won't go to, he's going to be 21 um, in March. And he had no desire to drink whatsoever. He still has a huge resentment against him. He won't even go at his age to a party where they're drinking. Mm. Uh, he won't. He's very successful uh, uh, diesel mechanic. Um, he, he just, he's carved out that alcohol will not be a part of his future. Good for him. My youngest, who is four-year uh, college bound and who is like me, he's the one I worry about <laughs> because he's so much like me, impulse right. control. But he, um, he tells me things. I'll say, mom, you're not going to believe what so-and-so did. He asked me to give him piss for his piss test. I'm like, like he tells me about the drugs. He tells me about the alcohol. Mm-hmm. If he goes somewhere with his girlfriend, he'll tell me, yeah, they were drinking. They were doing this. He's just so 
honest and open with it that, right. um, yeah, so I, I'm keeping my eye on it. <laughs> yes. Hopeful, hopeful. And it's so nice to hear that you are at a place where you can have open and honest conversations. And it sounds like maybe some work to do. Of course, we all have work to do. Right. You know, having those resentments, we know are so difficult on us to hold that. And so hopefully, I hope that your, your oldest, um, can work through that. Yeah, sure. he will. He, he will. I mean, as long as I stay sober. Um, yeah. You know, now listen up, bitch. No more drinking. Oh yeah. And the three, well, in all honesty, uh, Lori, getting back to my health, it's progressed so far. Like I have a, an 80 year old body. Mm. I'm insulin dependent. I, there's just like, if I would drink again, like I was in a coma. Um, I had, a, I was in a coma on life support. My kidneys had failed. Apparently my kids were allowed to come into the ICU and say goodbye to me. I remember none of it. I wow. was in an, in an induced coma and I got out and I was drinking two weeks later because I had no memory of the hospital stay. And this is what I feel like this is the, the most important message is based on a drug that is legal for you to purchase and consume as much as you did. You are now on your deathbed. Yep. Uh, yeah, I, I'm uh, managing. I mean, you know, I have uh, like my insulin pump. Here's my, my insulin pump. It hooks to me. But, you know, it's something that I have to accept. I also have to accept that because of this, I'll probably die a horrible death of like a pancreatic cancer or liver cancer or something like that. Like all the times I was in ICU, all the times I had diabetic ketoacidosis, I kept thinking like, there's got to be a God and he must want me here for something because cats don't even have this many lives. I mean, I have been on death's door so many, I, I, I have at least 15 stints in ICU for alcohol, at least, whether it's my pancreas, whether it was uh, diabetic ketoacidosis, it's just, yeah, I, I, you know, I'm here, I'm alive. I got a long way to go health wise, but you know, I'll get there starting to take care of myself. Self-love is very difficult for me because I, I do. I, um, I, like I said, I have this proud exterior that can sometimes masquerade as arrogance. But if anybody knew me, it's just me holding myself together on the outside because it's a mis mismatch on the inside, you know? Yes, um, but I, know. I do come <laughs> from a lot of pride. There's like self false pride. I have like, I, I have to be like in control and, and it comes from, from my upbringing. My mother was very much like that. She could be crying all night long and someone come to the door. Oh, come in, you know? Um, so uh, it's a learned, it's a learned characteristic and it's very hard to shake, you know? Um, so like with, when I go to the meetings, the zoom meetings since March, um, the reason that I'm in the background is because I have no problem telling my story, but there's, there's a couple of ways. Like I'm usually the one that sits there and lurks. And then when somebody, when somebody asks my opinion, I'll tell it. And like the whole room, the, the jaws just drop because I'm so honest. So you wait it and you've waited for me to talk. And then I talk. And I scare each and every one of you around away because I say, yeah, I shit myself and was walking into the mall, you know? And uh, so, so I actually, I actually lurk be, because of my 
false pride. Everyone can be on these meetings in their pajamas and doing this. I can't. I have to look made up and I have to be professional. And I'm not that way at eight o'clock at night. I have my, you know, bras off, makeup's off. And so I just want, and also because I talk about drugs and alcohol all day, and I am the presenter and I'm the one doing this. I like to listen. In this yes. It's yes. my downtime to sort of gather myself for the night and breathe. It's almost like a yoga to me to sit in the meetings and just listen to people, you know? I do know. And I, and I, I appreciate that so much too, as a facilitator, we always say, you know, well, I can't say we, but I know I say, I see you, I hear you, I feel you because I do. And I recognize that there are some of us that need to just turn off the camera, to just stop doing, to stop Mm -hmm. giving, to stop presenting, to stop being like, it's a lot of work to be the fun one. It's a lot of work to be the happy one. It's a lot of work to be the one that educates others. Mm -hmm. And you're doing all of those things while trying not to drink a handle of vodka and making sure that your insulin is pumping correctly. Yeah, it it is. That's one of the caveats of being the fun one and the one to always lift the spirits and the one to bring us out of the doldrums is that when you are down, um, there's really nowhere to turn. Um, there's not a lot of places to turn and, you know, to sit with it and sit in it is not healthy, but I know exactly. And I know you understand the way, because you're like that. You're like, you go at a hundred, hundred and fifty percent. And that's me. I have to be the best. It's got to be the best. I got to go, 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 go. And then I need to, and that's one of the reasons I started drinking actually was because then at night, my mind would rewind everything that I did and I would have to, well, I could have done this. I could have done that. Wasn't perfect at this. And I, I, I wasn't sleeping well at all. So it was that nightly yeah. thing, but my mind mm. um, goes, just goes constantly. It's got, I got, it's got to be bigger and it's got to be better and I got to be the best. And, and like I do, I teach, um, I actually teach recovery coaching um, for the state. Um, so cool. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I, my backgrounds, what, what happened was I lost after the high school bit and then the college bit, I lost my career in education and in education in Pennsylvania, which is very stringent with their education laws, you can have absolutely nothing on your background. Now I have no felonies. I have six DUIs, but six DUIs, come on. You want me teaching your kids? (laughs) Well, let me tell you, kids, not what to do when they're up behind you, come to a complete stop. Like what not to do? Don't come down through town and stop at all the green lights. One of my DUIs, I came down through town and stopped at eight green lights. Just got those little like transmitters. Was it red or green that we're supposed to stop? So, so I am, I am, um, I did apply for a program that's called Pathways to Pardons, where um, if you're a do-gooder and you do, you, you know, you can get those expunged from your record. But what I did was I married my, my love of education and my knowledge of education. I have a master's degree in education and I took it for my passion for recovery and I married the two. So I started out in the drug and alcohol field um, teaching for Pennsylvania Certification Board the um, certified recovery specialist courses. So, so I did that all over the place um, because you need to be certified here. And then I got 
I got more and more involved until I was actually running um, several recovery centers in the area, big recovery centers that had like a male recovery house on the top, medically assisted treatment in on the second floor and a recovery center for meetings and gatherings on the first floor. So, so my last um, position, I was running two of those, one in each, one in, in two different counties. Um, and in it, you gotta be very careful, especially as a chronic relapser who has uh, mental health issues as well, when you're working in recovery to keep that very separate from your personal recovery. Um, mm. definitely, I can't say, oh, well, I've been at work all day long. I helped this person. I went to the ER and helped this one. I gave Narcan to this one. I'm good for the day. I'm pumped. <laughs> you can't do that. And hence, uh, when I started to feel like, wow, if I continue to do this, I'll drink because I wasn't, mm. I, I am an executive, uh, you know, going to meetings every single day is difficult. That's when I found She Recovers, which I found way back in March. It's been almost a year. And while I consider myself a member of AA and I have dear friends in AA, it is not the only program of recovery that I follow. Therefore, I don't take on sponsees and the like because I think it'd be doing a disservice to AA. Um, if I had my druthers and it met all the time, um, or uh, yeah, Women for Sobriety, would probably be my go-to group, um, but it only meets once a week. So, so that it, because it's 15, it's 13 uh, principles of, and, and they're uplifting. Uh, they up, it uplifts women. Um, but, but then again, it was only like eight people. So you couldn't hide in that group. So when I came to, she recovers, I'm like, wow, this is eight o'clock every night. I can do this. I like these people. The only problem is I did the same thing that I did with AA almost. Uh, when I first came to AA, I didn't speak a lot at meetings because I told you, I felt like I would embarrass myself because I could never find a woman that drank like me ever, ever, ever. So I started going to this, this group and it was a bunch of old men. Uh, not perverted old men, like loving old men. And I named it like, because one time someone said, what meeting are you talking to? I said, the grumpy old men. So this was like 15 years ago or so. To this day, AA in my area calls that the grumpy old men meeting. Love it. I went there because I drank like them, And I had daddy issues and they were very loving and encompassing. They were very hardcore. Sit down and shut up. Did you get enough experience yet? Uh, they were very hardcore, but but I adored them. Um, so when I read uh, Jean Kirkpatrick's story for Women for Sobriety, when I read her autobiography, first time in my life that I found a woman that drank like me and she was educated. Like if some, you know, people consider you under the bridge if you're drinking like that. I was an executive at a college and she was a professor as well. So I thought, wow. She's my hero. She can drink like I can. And that really turned the corner for me. Yeah. When I found that there was a connection, I, I, there is somebody out there for me. So, so that's when I started to go to those meetings. And when I came to She Recovers, I still kind of feel the same way, Lori. I love everybody. I love that everything's included. I'm peeling back the onion. However, a lot of times I would like if I was just telling you, yeah, I drank a handle and a half and someone's just saying, I think I have a problem with drinking. Can someone help me? I, I don't want to scare them away. 
I don't know even a lot of people in that group that drank like I did. So a lot of times, um, and, and I don't want to do this. I don't want to ever compare myself out. Mm-hmm. There's going to be somebody there for me, you know? Oh, for sure. Well, and I think too, what I have experienced with groups like that, and again, facilitating in not just the international, but also on the local level, the more we open up about our experiences, the more we recognize that they're so on the same path and parallel to others' experiences. And you being one of those, for me, I think uh, about being a professional and being a uh, drunk, you know, like being able to say that, yes, in order to get through this particular meeting, I had to have a shot of fireball before I could walk into it. And um, no question that that was going to be, uh, you know, for, for me, the thought process of doing it, regardless of how much, right? Like a handle versus a shot. It is the fact that you're going through the motion to take a a mind altering substance in order to get through your day. And there's so many of us. And what I, what I love about your story is that you are thriving. You're in a place now where you are capable of helping others and recognizing that you're on your own path and journey as well. And I just want to thank you and let you know how grateful I am for your time because I know, and of course your, your openness and vulnerability. And I know that, uh, especially based on your conversations about keeping things hidden. That's a lot for you to share. And I appreciate that. So to sort of wrap it up, let's talk about where you are now. Like you, so you finished with the education piece, you're tying in your recovery with your experience. So, so what, what is Michelle working on these days? If Michelle was queen of the universe, I wouldn't have to, uh, I, I could sit at home and write novels. Um, my, the only thing I give myself credit for, because I'm not one that can, you know, I'm still working on me. I'm still working at loving me and self-care. It has not come easily. Um, but I, I am a writer and I'm a good writer. Um, that's one thing I can say unequivocally. So right now through COVID, I, I had COVID, my whole family had COVID. Um, I, I was really in bad shape. I'm still on the recovery end of that. Right now, I am not running anything I because of COVID. Uh, I did finally start my, my book. I'm, I'm going to do a memoir, but, and I know there's a million of them out there, but I think I need to do it for myself. But I'm very hesitant to do that because I don't know that I would publish it while my mother's alive. Mm. I think I owe her the respect of, um, she's very, very private person. And for me to tell part of her story in in order to authenticate mine seems like a betrayal to me almost. So, um, and, and yet not to tell the truth in my book I feel would be a betrayal to me. Yeah. So I'm very, so although I'm writing it, uh, I, I don't know where I'm going to go with it yet. I think it'll be very uh, cathartic for me to write it for myself, even if it's like a journal. But um, when I write like every single, I didn't tell you that my background was in English too. So I was an English professor. And, um, and so I, every word to me, like is, it's like an emotion, like, it takes me so long. I put everything into a, a, a like a letter, a letter of reference for somebody. I just, 
you know, I can't whip up anything. It's the perfectionism in me. But um, so, so I am, I have started it. Uh, and I did want to say one thing that that was a game changer for me as far as keeping myself sober that I forgot to mention is um, a couple years ago, I went through um, DBT therapy, dialectical behavioral therapy. And that was a game changer for me in realizing how emotive I am and how, like, I'm a lot. I'm a lot. I walk into a room as a very strong persona and can be very intimidating. I found out when I had my staff adores me, yet they were very intimidated. I went through DBT, which is distress tolerance, interpersonal relating, uh, emotion regulation. And if it taught me one thing, because you can't just go through a 14 week program and be cured, was to stop, to think before I speak, (laughs) because I do come, I'm very unfiltered. DBT therapy really did a lot for me to, to stop and say, where's this coming from? Why did I just blow up at this 16 year old? And I've seen him for two seconds. What happened in my day? And should I say this or should I bite my tongue right now? Um, that, that was a, a game changer for me. I'd like to take another, I'd like to get good at, it. Mm-hmm. you know, I, I, I've, I've learned it. I know the skills. I have the great big, huge notebook here of it. Um, but I'd like to delve a little more into that. Yeah. It sounds super interesting. Right. And ACEs, um, adverse childhood experiences. I teach that, but I love that. That was the, besides Jean Kirkpatrick, (laughs) so autobiography, ACEs is what helped me to believe uh, you're not that fucked up. This was inevitable. Your life as an addict was inevitable. Um, And that's the 10 point test where, you know, if you score four or above, you're more likely to have diabetes, heart disease, mental health issues, addiction. And I have a seven out of 10, that, mm. um, the, the A score. So I love to teach it because when I'm in a room full of people that want recovery and now that they have recovery, they want to help someone. Everyone wants to help right away. And it helps them to realize, to, to sort of give themselves a break. Like, yeah, you're, you're fucked up. This is why. Let's go through your, your traumas. And then, yeah, you probably fucked up your kids. I probably did some serious damage to my kids, but guess what? You can stop the cycle. Right now, you can help your kids strive. And guess what? You can guarantee it's not going to happen to your grandchildren. You can make that happen. And if you can do that for four generations, you don't have to come from a family of addicts. You don't have to. And that's the message I love to spread, um, to make people be a little gentler on themselves because it's the only thing that helped me do that. Mm. Amazing. That just touched me. I love it. So we have um, a couple more generations to go and then the hell with intergenerational trauma. Right. So listen, children, do what we say. Don't do what we did. Okay. (laughs) But you know, this is the last thing I do with all my guests. If you could have a dinner party and invite one guest, dead or alive, to your home, who would it be and why? My dad. Um, I would, when I was 16 years old, I went to his grave. I found it by myself. And the only person that ever took me there was my pop-pop. And he died when I was like 10 or 11. Uh, and I said, dad, I'll never do to my mom what you did to her. And I didn't with drugs. I did it with alcohol. Um, but my dad, I was so angry and so embarrassed for so long by what he did but yet I adored him. Um, I would love to say, I forgive you. I I get it. 
I, I know if I'm like this and I didn't even have the trauma that you did, it's okay, dad. Um, I love you. Uh, I'd really like to have him here. I can tell that's touching you. Thank you for showing your emotion. <laughs> well, this is sad to say, but our time is up, Michelle. I am so glad we were able to connect. Me too. I am so glad that you were as open and authentic as you said you would be. Because <laughs> I appreciate that. And you are right. We are very much a lot alike. I cannot wait till we meet in real life so we could tell dumb jokes and laugh at ourselves. Mm-hmm. And I look forward to potentially reading your book. And maybe if <laughs> your mom is not okay with it, we could just do that on the side. <laughs> maybe you could, you could write my foreword. <laughs> I could. Oh my God. I would love to. I could write the foreword. <laughs> Yes. And then I could have you look at some stuff that I'm writing and you could be my editor because you're just as a wacky perfectionist as I am. I always think about that. I'm like, I can't even like, it's just a little, it's a fucking email, like send the email. Yeah. I weigh on every word. It's ridiculous. It is, but it's proof that, that we're, so this is the thing. It's like, for me, at least it's the same with texts. Like that's coming from me. Like somebody took a snapshot of that. Somebody has that email somewhere. They're going to send it. Like, no, it has to represent the perfectionist that I am. That's what, that's what I always told my kids. I said, you can say it and it's gone. You put it on paper. It's there forever. Forever. Well, and now with fucking video recorders, I try to tell my 14 year old, I'm like, listen, dude, everything you do is being taped. Like it's recorded everywhere. We have cameras outside of our house. There are cameras at the stores. There are freaking, everybody's got, everybody's got the the ring doorbell. So when you're driving by and walking by, like you're being recorded at all times. So don't be a dick. Can you imagine? I can't even imagine my life on video. Oh my God. The things that I've done in addiction. I can only imagine. (laughs) The places I've pissed. And we thought it was okay. Like that's the problem. Like for me, the problem is like, these were things that we just did and everybody's like, it's okay. It's fucking not okay. Like it is not okay. Normal people don't piss between cars in the Walmart parking lot. They just don't. (laughs) (laughs) They don't. (sighs) Okay, girl. I love your face. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Lori. See you later, girl. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Recovery Hour podcast. Successful podcasts equal subscribers and good ratings. Please take a few minutes to rate, review, and subscribe. To learn more about me, your host, Lori Windfell, jump on over to therecoveryhour.com. Here you'll find information on my coaching and speaking practices, as well as information on guests of the show. If you're still listening to this and you haven't subscribed to my mom yet, what are you doing? You're lame. So go do it right now. All right, all right, calm down. Sorry about that. He's just really excited for this to be successful since I I've been spending all of my free time on this project and not with him. While you aren't lame, as my son suggests, I would really appreciate a few minutes of your time to subscribe. While it doesn't seem like much, it really does help my goal in spreading the word of recovery. Until next time, let's continue to inspire, live, and give.